navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 45 of the Dayscape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. In this episode, I'm inviting Warner Chavez back to the podcast, and we're going to summarize our favorite updates from the Microsoft Ignite 2020 This Year Virtual Conference. Hey, Warner, welcome back to the show. Hey, Chris, how are you? Happy to be back here, beginning of the fall in Canada, but it's all good. Yeah, welcome. So lots of time for reading. Yeah. Horses. And so, watching. Yeah. And watching. Yeah, lots of watching. Before we get into the details of our favorite updates, what did you think of the virtual experience this year? So, like most virtual conferences that I've been attending, quote unquote, this year, it's a mixed bag in terms of the experience itself, right? The quality of the content is great. It was highly curated this year, especially because I think it was 100% Microsoft presenters. And the MVPs, for example, were only interacting with people in some sessions called Ask the Experts, but they were not presenting content directly, for example. So it was, like I said, a very highly curated experience where Microsoft was controlling all the messaging and all the demos and everything. Some of the stuff was very high quality, like if people sat down and watched the virtual keynote with Satya and all the other Microsoft executives, they did all sorts of like really funky video transitions you know, Satya looks at a screen and then in the screen they zoom in and then you see the new person that's going to talk and stuff like that, right? So that's kind of cool. I mean, these conferences have big budgets, they're big events, right? And they're adding that creativity for the budget that they have into the virtual presentation, right? So that's that's kind of neat. The thing that you and I have talked about before about all the virtual conferences, of course, is the lack of any networking in person. Right, and just I commend the efforts of all the organizers of all the virtual conferences that I've attended. They've tried to try to put social experiences in all of them. Some of them do it in a different ways. Some of them do like trivia shows, or some of them just do Q and A. Some of them try to play some other type of online game or, or stuff like that. But it's just not quite the same. And in a big conference like Ignite, you're kind of like drowning in the amount of people that there are, and, and virtually it's just not as easy, right? Like if you were in personally in a conference, maybe you would just try to join some people that are talking and then you have a small group amongst all the thousands of people, right? But virtually it's just like, you're always just one amongst the thousands, right? And it's hard to keep track of everything going on. So that's the only thing that I would say, somebody still needs to come up with a good idea of how we can replicate that networking experience. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's always been my favorite part of the conferences is the people I meet. If I share a cab or I purposely go sit with people at lunch who I don't know and strike up conversations or they do. And to me, that's the best part of the conference. I do like the recordings, though, and being able to watch them at like 1.25, which I do a lot, listen to them yeah. very fast. And I slow it down if it's deep and I speed it up sometimes even faster if it's not. So I do like that part because I can consume more faster. But yeah, the networking is really the best part of a conference for me. Anyway, let's jump in. One of the things that looked pretty exciting is the addition of a number of new availability zones. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah. So this is a part of Microsoft's refactoring of their data centers. Basically, in the beginning of time, when Azure first came out, you had different regions and mostly Microsoft was managing the whole concept of how you organized your cloud state as different regions, right? So you would 
provide, let's say, a VM, you would put it in a region, and then they had some other constructs, like, for example, availability sets that said, okay, these two VMs have to be up and running, or one of them has to be up and running at all times, so make sure that they're in different racks, for example. That was different from what AWS has been doing for many more years, where AWS introduced that concept of availability zones a long time ago, right, which was two separate different data centers in the same region, right? Over the last maybe two years, Microsoft has been refactoring their regions to incorporate the same concept, and it just continues to expand globally. So the big announcements here, of course, for Ignite were that there are two more availability zone-enabled regions now, Canada Central, for example, which is the one that's in Toronto, Australia East as well. So now both of those is one region that is now composed of multiple separate data centers for redundancy, right? That brings the total number of Microsoft's AZ-enabled regions to 14, right? And the plan is that every country where they have a region well, at least one region will have multiple availability zones over the next 24 months. So that's the goal in terms of expanding the availability zone, which is a huge capital expense and investment for Microsoft, obviously, right? Every time they say, oh, we just added an AZ, it literally means that we just added a Azure data center, right? right? It sounds just like, oh, sweet, a new AZ, but like it's a lot, it's millions of dollars worth of investment, right? So probably tens of millions, if not even hundreds. It's funny because when I was looking into this update, I was thinking about what it'd be like to start a competitor to any of the public clouds. And can you just think of how much capital you'd have to lay out? Like, yeah, you built one data center, maybe two. That's nothing compared to what Google, Microsoft, and Amazon have, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's also, for example, going a little bit off topic here, but for example, a lot of financial analysts give Oracle a lot of grief over the amount of capital that they've spent creating more data centers. And they believe that Oracle hasn't spent enough that right. it should be spending more, right? Or even needs to invest more to create more regions, more data centers. Because otherwise, it basically becomes a race that you will never be able to catch, right? right. It's just, like you said, the barrier of entry to even be competitive, it goes so high, right? So yeah. yeah, and this is very interesting though, because Azure already had regions in more countries than AWS. But now people usually would say, well, yeah, they have more regions, but that's because they don't really have redundancy at the region level. So it's like the same, right? Like the redundancy is at the regional level. So that's why they need to have more regions than AWS. So we'll have to see in 24 months, what the landscape looks like, because they might be up to the level where they will have as many availability zones as AWS provides as well. So very, very cool. Yeah, indeed. What about Azure Arc? So Azure Arc, for people that are not familiar with this, you and I spoke about Azure Arc probably around the build conference that happens in April. But for people that are not familiar with it, Azure Arc is Microsoft's latest angle in their hybrid strategy, right? So let's let's call it that. But it's not a hybrid strategy in the sense of, you know, we're going to put our appliance in your data center. It's more of a hybrid strategy of, we're gonna give you a virtual piece of software, right? That is gonna help you manage your on-prem 
resources, right? So this is what Azure Arc is. So Azure Arc allows you to put some software in your data center, and then through that software, you can manage, monitor, change things, patch, etc. all these different types of resources like Windows servers, Linux servers, SQL servers, Kubernetes clusters. And the idea, of course, is that Let's say, for example, SQL servers, since obviously we are the Datascape podcast. You would want to know, let's say, your patch level of your SQL servers or know if they're vulnerable to some sort of security issue. So Azure Arc, you could have Azure Arc inside your on-prem data center with your SQL servers registered to your Azure Arc. You would have your SQL servers that are in Azure properly. And then, for example, you could have Azure Arc inside your AWS VPC. And then Azure Arc there could collect the information from your SQL servers that you have in AWS, right? So the idea is that regardless of where these resources are sitting, you are gonna leverage all the Azure infrastructure for monitoring and alerting and policy management, et cetera, to manage those resources. It's an interesting hybrid strategy. The software itself is just now GA for Windows and Linux servers, okay? Kubernetes clusters and SQL servers is now public preview, and the data services is now in public preview. Now, the data services is a little bit more interesting because the data services actually allow you to run on-prem or in another cloud provider, for example, an Azure-like experience for your databases. So this is a little bit different. It's not just about monitoring or policies or whatnot. You can actually create Azure SQL server-managed instances and PostgreSQL-managed instances inside your on-prem, for example, Kubernetes cluster by using Azure Arc data services, right? And the idea is that because it's all controlled by Microsoft, then, you know, Microsoft's own software will all come pre-configured for the monitoring. You set the word do you want to back them up in the cloud and it will back up the databases for you. If there's a software update that needs to be rolled out, it will happen automatically for you and it will handle the high availability in the Kubernetes cluster to be able to patch all the components and all that kind of stuff, right? So that, I guess we'll have to wait and see, right? It will also be an evergreen version of both services. So like I said, if they're constantly gonna be pushing the updates to your Azure Arc cluster that you have on-prem, for example, basically you wouldn't be running like the retail version of SQL Server, right? You'll be running the actual Azure version of managed instance, but on-prem through the Azure Arc data services, right? So this is a very interesting hybrid strategy I guess right now everything's in preview, right? Everything's in preview except the monitoring for Windows Server and Linux Server. Mm-hmm. And that one is GA right now. It's so we'll have to see. Maybe we'll talk in about a year and see what happened. If people really adopted these hybrid tools or they just never really took off. It's hard to see right now. I can see the value proposition, but it's hard to get people to change so drastically the way they do their infrastructure, right? So we'll have to wait and see how it goes. Yeah, it is a really brilliant strategy. I'm very interested in seeing how this matures, if it does, who uses it, like you said. We've obviously been podcasting together for too long because you've preempted about three of my questions. But I guess one of them is you answered that you could use it in another cloud, which is 
interesting and cool. How does it really compare to Anthos? And I know that could be actually a whole podcast. So let's try and keep it to kind of a summary. Like, how does it compare? Well, basically, Anthos is focused on the containerized Kubernetes platform, right? Mm -hmm. And Arc right now has two different things. It's trying to do the Kubernetes containerization as well. But Microsoft is also trying to get at just general SA, general DBA workflow as well, right? So the general SA workflow would be, I want to also just monitor and manage vanilla Windows and Linux servers, right? VMs, physical, whatever it is, you can register through your Azure Arc and then manage them all through a single pane of glass in Azure, right? So that's something that's different. And then the actual data services is something that's definitely really different. The data services is more akin to what Amazon offers. Amazon offers on-prem RDS, which is basically very similar to these Arc data services. It's you download a VM appliance, and then you benefit from the RDS automation, but you're just running it on-prem, right? So that's kind of like where it sits right now against its competitors. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest market for it is people that are already in Azure and they are not moving out of Azure anytime soon. And by the fact that you get them to also manage their on-prem resources with Azure, you're just putting like another hook in them to keep yeah. them in Azure, right? Yep. So I think that's where the easiest sell to make is through that angle. Like just go to your client. Your client's already in Azure. They have 100, 300 Windows servers or Linux servers on-prem mm -hmm. and you sell them on the value proposition of like, look, now you can manage them and monitor them all through a single Central. pane of glass in Azure. Yeah. yeah, and that person, once they have that set up, they're not gonna move away from Azure ever, right? Yeah. It's a good strategy in that sense. I'm more skeptical about how well it's gonna play out for people that is it a reason for people to want to use Azure is the real question in my mind. Yeah, I suspect not. But yeah, good points. Moving along, it looks like there were just a ton of backup services updates. Why don't you walk us through your favorites? Yeah, so first is there is a new experience in the portal called the Backup Center, and that provides a single unified experience for backup management at scale, especially in a big enterprise. And most of our clients now that are really adopting the cloud, almost none of them have just one location and one subscription, you know? Almost all of them have some sort of location redundancy and they have multiple subscriptions for whatever reason, usually, you know, either segregation of workloads or for billing reasons, right? You end up with four or five subscriptions, different locations, et cetera. So the problem or the issue was that the backup faults that you can create, they are tied to the resources that exist in a subscription, right? So the problem then is that even though you're backing up one quote unquote enterprise, you get a fragmented view of what is going on, right? Because each one of those backup vaults has its own set of dashboards, it has its own set of alerts, et cetera, et cetera, right? So mm -hmm. this probably was brought up to Microsoft as a concern by the big players that pay for you know 80% of the development. And then they came up with this backup center, which basically allows you to monitor and look at what you have all together across backup vaults, subscriptions, locations, and even tenants. So if you have multiple tenants, which is not very common, but we do have some people that will have more than one AD tenant in Azure, then you can also even look across tenants into your backup center. That's great, not just for ease of use or whatnot, but I find that 
it happens. I don't want to say so often, but ever so often, we do have an issue with a client that doesn't know exactly what's going on with their backups. And then we have to come in, we got to like, you know, reverse engineer, take the reins and get them yep. to a healthy state. But even today in 2020, it's crazy how many organizations don't have a good handle on backups, period. Mm -hmm. So anything that can help a company, you know, just cover all their gaps in this area, I think is good in general, you know what I mean? So that's, that's something that is going to really help with that. Yeah, that centralization, I think we'll see more of. It's really hard to set up the subscriptions in a future-proofed kind of well-thought-out way. And then you got resource groups tied to subscriptions. And if it's done wrong, how do you move things around? And in my opinion, Microsoft has completely broken sign-in and authentication to Microsoft services, not Active Directory. That's a different thing. But that whole worker school account, and you can actually get into different things, whether on what you've selected. Yeah, that's kind of confusing completely sometimes too, broken. You have the same email. Sometimes it happens to me where I have the same email. For example, I've registered my Pythian.com email for mm -hmm. some stuff, but some of it, it will recognize it as like, oh, you did it for Pythian.com, mm -hmm. but for your personal Pythian.com, not your work Pythian.com. Exactly. Like, I have no idea how to tell them apart. They're both yep. from Pivion.com. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's something that is going to be hard to unwire. Oh, it's completely point. broken. Microsoft, if you're listening, please fix it. It is so bad. Not to rant too much and go too far the wrong way, but like, I really want to use Skype on my Xbox to talk to my family and I can't because it's associated with another account and it's just completely broken. So anyway, more centralization, I think is fantastic. And I think we'll see more of this. They'll change and maybe there'll be a different hierarchy to manage the subscriptions, but it's completely broken. Yeah, maybe um, at the end of the day, they'll come up with a new organization, new top root level entity or something. We'll yeah, see. I to relate think to it already exists, but it's not like you can do like multiple orgs on the Azure portal, for example, right? It's usually multiple directories, but it's known as a tenant, right? Right. Anyway, sorry for the rant. Let's shift gears and talk about some data. This is the Datascape podcast. Let's talk about, I mean, any conversation with Warner about Azure usually includes some Cosmos discussion. So there were a couple updates to Cosmos DB and Synapse. Why don't you walk us through them? Yeah, Cosmos, I'm telling you, I tell people, I tell anybody that hears me, Cosmos DB is a product that doesn't have an equivalent in any of the other clouds. And whoever's listening to this that disagrees with me, feel free to shoot me an email and explain to me how that's wrong. Because there is no other multi-mode, globally replicated, both for read and write across pretty much every single continent, provides now not just provisioned out of scalable throughput, but now after this Ignite announcement also offers serverless consumption. Right. So now we go to one of the things or one of the biggest gaps that Cosmos DB had was that people will say, oh, I really would like to play with Cosmos, but it starts at 400 request units, which I forget what the price is for 400 request units. And there is no pause button. So every time I go in, I have to like create it and destroy it. It's very painful. I just want to learn. Well, now there is a serverless offer, which is not just great for learning or demos or dev tests for any of these non-production workloads. Even if you're running production, if it's something that is not gonna be 24 seven stable workload, you can still deploy it on serverless, right? If it is gonna be 24 seven, then serverless is not for you because the price of a serverless request unit is higher than the price of a properly provisioned one. 
right? So if you have two Cosmos DB databases that do the exact same work, the one that's serverless is gonna cost you more. That's the way that Microsoft tries to incentivize, of course, mm -hmm. for people to actually do provision throughput so they can do their own capacity planning, right? Because if everybody just went serverless, I assume it would be a lot harder to properly forecast what you need and make sure that everybody has the resources they need at any given point in time, right? Mm -hmm. But anyway, so this just comes out to continue rounding out the capabilities of this product. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it really is amazing. But my favorite thing about Cosmos DB is the fact that it is a completely different database depending on what you want it to be. So if you want it to be like a Cassandra, no problem. If you want it to be like a Mongo, no problem. If you want it to be like something else, no problem. Like it's pretty cool. Right? Yeah, actually I get this all the time too. People are like, oh, but who's using Cosmos DB? Well, just now that serverless came out, the infrastructure team at Walmart wrote a blog post about their experience with it and how they're using it and how they are getting better costs now because of the move to serverless. And this wasn't like a, you know, sometimes people say like, oh yeah, whatever, Microsoft paid content with a partner kind of thing. It was yep. actually just a Medium blog post from a Walmart engineer. You know what, I hadn't read that. I think that sounds interesting. That will be in the show notes for anyone else that's interested. I'll definitely be reading that. That's cool, because I have been wondering who's using it and what they're using it for. We guess a few times, but I'd like to see some real world reports. What about flexible server? That's a very interesting one. So flexible server is now a deployment option for PostgreSQL and MySQL, because that again, for people that thought, oh my God, this Azure first party service for PostgreSQL or MySQL is not gonna go anywhere. They're just gonna create one thing and then you know never update it ever. It hasn't been the case. Microsoft even did the acquisition of Citus to provide the PostgreSQL hyperscale, the automatic sharding PostgreSQL. Mm -hmm. And now they're offering more options for deployment on either PostgreSQL or MySQL. Basically, you know, you can do HA now. You have the option to select whether you want to do HA in a single availability zone or if you want multiple redundancy or more redundancy and your region has multiple AZs, you can do HA across AZs as well. And this is all declarative, right? Because we're talking about fully managed Azure DB for these open source databases. So all you have to do is say, I want it this way or I want it that way and the service takes care of everything for you. And something that's very interesting is that now these databases have stop and start capability. So same as, for example, I was just mentioning how people would complain that, oh, I can't pause Cosmos DB. Mm -hmm. Well, now it's the same thing with MySQL or PostgreSQL. People would say, I can't pause it. Well, now you can, you can stop and start it, which obviously makes it way more attractive for any of the use cases that we just mentioned, you know, dev, test, demo, non 24 seven workloads, et cetera, et cetera. Cool. And what about Azure SQL Edge? So this is a new edition of SQL Server and it is geared towards, as the name says, Edge, is geared towards the IoT market. And interestingly enough, is not just basically a rebrand of SQL Server. It is a slightly different package than the retail SQL Server or even than Azure SQL Database. For example, Azure SQL Edge embeds the capabilities known as streaming analytics, for example, into the 
SQL engine, right? So instead of just being two services, like in Azure, you would have Azure SQL database and streaming analytics. Azure SQL Edge actually bundles both things together and you can do streaming inside the Azure SQL Edge engine and then run the streaming SQL queries inside that. You can't do that, for example, on SQL Server. I actually would love if SQL Server would do something like that because it has a lot of really cool capabilities. Like you can define like continuous time windows and aggregate through a continuous time and stuff like that. Or you can have tumbling windows of queries, right? Where you can just say, give me the result. Every time I run, just give me the result over a tumbling window of 10 minutes, stuff like that, right? You can do that in SQL Server. You gotta start writing your own date logic and time logic and whatnot, right? So this is something really cool because it's not exactly the same engine. It's one that has been augmented with some capabilities that are geared towards the IoT use case, right? And then the other thing is that it is a smaller footprint container. It doesn't have all the other parallel services that SQL Server is bundled in, right? It's less than 500 megabyte container, so it can run on smaller hardware. And it will also have a different way to license as well. The licensing, I don't know if there's a full pricing guide yet on this, but what I was told is that the licensing is gonna be geared towards you know, how many IoT devices you have, then that's how they're gonna charge your Azure SQL Edge, which is hmm. kind of interesting as well. You yeah, know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, you know, on the outset, I wasn't very interested in it. I was just like, oh, SQL Compact, here we go again. But yeah, you know, just getting more and more interesting. I, again, wanna see some real world uses and hear about it. In fact, let's put a call to the audience, Warner. If anyone is using Azure SQL Edge, we would be very interested in having you maybe on the podcast, or if you're shy and you don't want to be on the podcast, but you want to send in a story and have us read it, let us know. Let's put that out there and share it with our listeners. Yeah, over time, once this gets a few more months of traction, and we also play around with it a lot more, it would be nice to compile enough material to do an episode just on SQL Edge, right? Yeah, definitely. And there looks like there were some updates to Power BI, although it was Really hard to tell what they were when I was reading the notes. Why don't you walk us through that one? So Power BI had a bunch of different updates, but I singled out a really neat update because I think it shows how much Microsoft is just betting on the integration of services as being obviously a huge differentiator, right? So this is called the Power BI usage cache for Synapse. And it's one of those things that you can only do because you control both sides of the equation, right? You have the Power BI team and the Synapse team both being under the Microsoft umbrella, right? Mm -hmm. So it's easy for them to integrate and talk to each other, et cetera, et cetera. So what they did is that if you are running Power BI against Synapse, for example, mm -hmm. then the different queries that run on Power BI will start to get cached in Synapse automatically to benefit a faster Power BI experience, right? <laughs> so it's basically literally saying, if you use any other visualization tool, your performance is gonna be good. It's gonna use just the regular Synapse engine and all the caching mechanisms it already has. But if you're using Power BI, it's gonna be even better, right? right? You're gonna have a dedicated usage cache and some intelligence built in to even like prefetch some data into Power BI before the user needs it kind of thing, right? Kind of like how some of the, I don't remember which browser it was, but I believe there was a browser that came out once that had this sort of like 
predictive you're going to click on this link so i'm going to download on the background type of thing yeah well i think chrome can or used to do that it was something that was talked about a lot anyway don't want to go too far off but yeah i know what you're saying <laughs> um, it's kind of like the same type of uh, a prefetch right? prefetch yeah like a prefetch exactly. yeah well, that makes sense i mean when they control both uh, view layer and no doubt Google will counter with something similar between, say, BigQuery and Looker or something along those lines. It's yeah. a good strategy. And it looks like there is a significant update really to Databricks and then on Azure. Hate the name. Think that it's very cool technology, though. Why don't you <laughs> talk about that so, one? This is interesting because it's really a Databricks announcement mm -hmm. and kind of like Microsoft just piggybacked on it to yeah. kind of remind yeah. everybody that they can still run Databricks in Azure. Yeah. You know, and this is another thing that's coming up a lot lately. People are coming up to me and asking, what's the deal with Databricks in Azure? Because it looks like Synapse is consuming 90% of the Databricks use case. And mm -hmm. I think that's maybe kind of like what Microsoft is trying to do with the focus that they put on the Photon. That's the name, the Photon engine for Spark. You don't like the name? I was going to give you a t-shirt with a <laughs> Photon engine. So it's really a Databricks capability. Databricks, and for all the people that are familiar with Spark, obviously you already know that it's all built on Java bytecode, right? That gets compiled to execute all these MPP distributed big data jobs. But as most people know as well, Java might not necessarily be the best performing runtime, right? So the Databricks team has put tons of work and investment into basically recreating a Spark runtime in C++. And the results, at least the stuff that I've seen, they claim is a 20x improvement in execution speed, right? I haven't played around with it. I don't even know if it's right away available. I have to look and see when I get some time. I will have to play around with it and run it against. I wish I had a petabyte data set that I could play around with. That's a lot of money. And yeah. the most I have on my own lab is one terabyte. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if even with one terabyte, I can get some measurable difference between the classic JVM engine and the new Photon C++ engine. Right? Well, keep me posted. The other day, to see. And then the other thing that's not really clear right now is that Databricks actually open sources a lot of the stuff they do. Like, yeah. for example, the Delta Lake tables, there is a flavor of Delta Lake that is inside Databricks. And if you always want the latest version of Delta Lake, then you have to pay for Databricks. But Databricks also open sources Delta Lake so that maybe the open source version will be like six months behind yeah. the real Databricks version, right? Yeah. So I'm just wondering if this is going to be the same thing. Like they're going to open source the Photon engine as well so that everybody will benefit from it. Or if they're going to just put a gate on it and say like, no, no, this is too good. If you want this, you got to pay for it. Databricks. So I guess we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. Yeah, I was. it's funny because I was actually wondering that same thing myself. And Databricks is a cool company. It's an interesting technology. I've met a bunch of people that work there. I was thinking the same thing along the lines of open sourcing the Photon Engine because I'm not a C++ programmer, but I can read it. And I was really curious. I'd like to take a look at the code and just see what that looks like purely out of curiosity. That's cool tech. And interesting because there are other Java-based engines that have been rewritten in C++ and they claim major speed boosts. There's a version of Cassandra as well with a different engine. The name escapes me. Yeah, no, that's an interesting trend. And the update you didn't want me to have in here that I snuck in, why don't you talk a little bit about its uh, argument over how cloudy this is, but Azure Stack, Warner. 
Yeah, sure, sure. So I don't have anything against Azure Stack. It's more to the fact that in particular right now, it's just merged into a hardware story. Yeah. So I don't find it. There's one of them, I guess. There's one that I do find cool, which I think we talked about before, the rugged portable Azure Stack, which is about the size of a small laptop and you can throw it in your backpack. So that is cool. For everybody else, Azure Stack is basically Microsoft's hardware that you can run on-prem and it gives you a version, like an image of Azure, and it uses the same APIs that Azure uses. So they sell Azure Stack as a compute appliance. They sell Azure Stack HCI as a hyper-converged storage and compute appliance as well. And they do sell smaller form. Oh, for example, this rugged one that we were just talking about, right? It's a smaller form, basically like a not general purpose server, right? This is like a small blade. You can carry it around. I think it even has like satellite communication capabilities mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I really, mean, really cool military stuff. application or yeah, of any kind. Maybe I'll have to fall in love with Azure Arc instead. But yeah, uh, yeah I just, I've always thought that Azure Stack was a gangster and game changing move. Again, not really sure who's using it or what for. The other thing I really love is just our AI updates on all the clouds. I just think it's so cool to be able to leverage those technologies with a couple of quick calls and not having to have had to try and build a vision API or a speech API. Why don't you walk us through the cognitive services updates? Yeah, so there's a couple of cognitive services updates that are more about just the service itself being compliant, just as some of the other services are, like, for example, private endpoints so that you don't have to traverse the internet to connect to your cognitive service, manage identities so that you can give role-based access to your cognitive services to some of your other Azure resources and stuff like that. But that's not really exciting stuff just because, you know, it's just basically bringing cognitive services up to par in terms of what they offer for security and infrastructure as the other services, right? The cool stuff is the new actual AI capabilities, right? So for example, now there is an anomaly detector that is generally available and is a general purpose anomaly detector. You can train it and use it to build any sort of anomaly detection functionality, whether it is for, you know, you wanna monitor your machines that you have in a factory, or you wanna monitor even your own application and you wanna feed it some telemetry to the anomaly detector when something happens in your infrastructure or anything that you can think of that you want to try and see if an ML-trained anomaly detector will help automate your operations, whatever that may be, because it doesn't even have to be IT operations, right? You can feed it business data if you want it to, right? And see if it does what you want it to do, right? So that's pretty cool. And that's generally available now. It was on preview before the anomaly detector. Then there's a new feature of the vision cognitive services called spatial analysis, Mm -hmm. which allows you to feed it pictures or video of things, right? And then it can count objects in the picture or the video, categorize them. So if it's people, it can measure distances. So for example, you say, I'm interested to see the average distance between people in this particular screenshot, Mm -hmm. or you can understand dwelling time, right? Which people use in retail, did somebody stop and look at an item and turned it over? Maybe we should send them a coupon later today if they didn't buy it, Right. right? So it can do dwelling time as well, and it can do wait time in a queue. So if you put like a video feed, 
of people cashing out, for example, you can actually in real time see how long the average person is waiting in the queue. So that's pretty cool as well. Yeah. So that's all that cool. stuff, yeah, all that stuff is now called spatial analysis under the vision category. Yeah. So, so those a, were the two, the two coolest ones that I found. Yeah, that is really cool. I mean, obviously the creepy factor continues to rise, but the yeah. practical factor. How many times do you leave a store when maybe you went to get there? Maybe you drove there for that one specific thing, and that's what you brought you in that day, but you forgot you didn't buy that and you bought 20 other things. Well, it means product placement or something is working great. However, I'd love to get a text before I leave the store or before I start my car saying, hey, you went there Come for back. milk. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't get know, your milk. something that says, hey, 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 before you leave, look, what if we offer you 10% right now? Are you going to yep. walk back in the store to buy, right? Or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. It's a lot of stuff. I joke with my wife that nowadays, if you want a coupon for something, just put the phone in the room and start talking about that you're interested in. If you're looking to buy a new computer, you just put the phone in the room and start talking about like, hey, we should buy a new laptop, blah, blah, blah. And guaranteed, next day, you're going to have some Facebook ads that it will be like, oh, look at all these laptops. Look yeah. at the coupon for this, coupon for that. Yeah. That's just a creepy factor, like you said. But. Yeah. And how long till they just send you one and you have to send it back? They automatically charge you. Yeah. And it's a good one that you would have bought anyway. I mean, there's interesting lines there, creepy Anyway, what about some ML service updates? Well, the ML service updates is basically Microsoft continues to push hard into putting ML in the hands of people that are not necessarily ML, quote unquote, trained, you know, machine learning experts, right? Mm -hmm. Empowering people that maybe they just need to have an understanding of the problem that they're trying to solve and try to help them come up with an ML solution for it, right? So they showed, for example, integration of ML with Synapse. I don't think it's there yet, but they did say it was going to be enabled very soon. So Synapse is not only going to have the SQL, the Spark, the Data Factory, the Power BI embedded on it, but it's also going to have the ML services embedded on it as well, which I thought it was a no-brainer anyway. Like, why yeah. wouldn't they just want to integrate the whole thing into the yep. Synapse workspace. Totally. So that's a really cool thing. And then the other thing that they've been working on is on the automated ML UI as well, right? Where you don't even have to fine tune, for example, parameters of your ML experiment. You make that problem an ML problem itself, right? The fact that you can run a bunch of different experiments on what are the best parameters to run my actual ML experiment, right? That's what they call the automated ML. And let the computer or the clusters figure out what are the best parameters for your ML experiment to get the best quality of results, right? Hmm. So now that has a UI as well, and it can do build and deploy models for some of the most common stuff, like, you know, just classification or regression or forecasting. So that's, again, putting more capabilities to get better results in the hands of people that maybe they didn't go to university for take, you know, a bunch of statistics scores and whatnot, but they understand what the algorithm does. And maybe they can get good results by letting the computers figure out the actual parameters for their models, right? So I think it's good. I actually very like a lot this direction. Yeah. I think there's always going to be a niche for the people that do understand all the math, mm -hmm. but I also think there's a lot of problems that 
could be solved or we could have good or better decisions assisted through ML that don't really require somebody that understands all the math, you know? It just requires somebody that understands what the algorithm does in the sense yeah. of what the output is supposed to be and how to interpret it, not necessarily what are the meat and potatoes of the algorithm internals. Yeah, I agree. And well, we need that in order to make it very, very popular. I'm excited about it as well. And then there was a communication services announcement. Yeah, so these couple of last updates that I put down on my top list, they're kind of like showing the type of services that now they're trying to offer that are more like high-level services, right? It's almost like SaaS services that they're offering inside Azure, but they're first-party services from Microsoft, right? So the first one is the one you just said, Azure Communication Services. It basically allows you to embed all the capabilities from the video conferencing in Teams, or the file sharing in Teams, but you can put it inside your own application. So if I wanted to, for example, today, go in and say, I'm gonna disrupt the dentist. I always say the dentist because my wife used to work at the dentist office. I'm gonna disrupt the dentist software market, but I don't wanna start building my own video conferencing thing, right? I'm not gonna start from scratch doing that. I'm not gonna start from scratch building my own file sharing thing. Like that's crazy, right? Or my own chat. I'm not going to code it from scratch either. So these Azure communication services allow you to take all that infrastructure and all that code that Microsoft already has and just embed those capabilities into your application, right? So you basically would say, I wrote this telehealth for dental software, and then it has video conferencing and you would use it, but you would not know that under the covers it's using Microsoft's cloud video conferencing infrastructure, right? So that's kind of like the idea with that. That's pretty cool. And then lastly, they announced a dedicated healthcare cloud. So this is the other one that I'm thinking is like that. It's almost like a SaaS mm -hmm. offering because it's not just like, oh, a dedicated healthcare cloud. Does that mean that I couldn't put healthcare stuff in it before? No, no, no. You could have always put healthcare. Actually, we have clients in healthcare that have been years in Azure now. Yep. But this Microsoft Healthcare Cloud is actually a full software that's already been created by Microsoft. Right now, I mean, I obviously don't have any hands-on on it. Probably you have to like prove that you're in healthcare to get on it. But it's a full solution. I saw the videos from it, the demos from it. And you know how I just said, what if I wanted to disrupt the dental market? Well, this is basically like Microsoft trying to disrupt the health software market because it's like a built-in solution. You log into it. It allows you to do your patient filing. It has scheduling on it. It has built-in capabilities for prioritizing, like triage of cases, obviously file handling, image processing, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So it's almost like a bundled SaaS offering for healthcare providers. Right? So and Microsoft was very clear in the sense that this is the first of many. So probably I'm thinking is in six months, they'll be like, oh, now we have the Microsoft marketing cloud or we have the Microsoft retail cloud, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So we'll see where this goes, but it's an interesting direction in the fact that it's not just selling cloud services as in like, oh, cloud infrastructure and stuff like that. It's actually just turned into 
selling software to an entire industry, right? This is a bit of a theme, right? I don't know enough details for a direct comparison, but Google has a healthcare API now. So this is a thing. And we have, and this makes sense, a government cloud or a type of cloud as well. So yeah, I can see this as a thing, although I can see it becoming very convoluted depending on how many verticals they chase. But it's Absolutely. I mean, the effort that it takes to put all these together, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But I mean, it makes sense also, now that you mentioned that Google has a healthcare API, with everything that happened this year, healthcare just got like digital transformation, just like hit or accelerated the timeline for so many companies because of COVID, right? It's like, oh, you thought you had to go all digital in five years? No, you had to do it now because otherwise yeah. you're out of business. Yep. And healthcare, especially, so much pressure to deliver healthcare in an efficient way, in a remote way, right? So I'm not surprised that these big companies are basically picking healthcare as their first use case for this Agreed. type of solution, right? Agreed. So Werner, thinking of all the updates we put together and discussed, did you have a favorite or a favorite area? Yeah, I think my favorite, or at least the favorite one that I'm looking most forward to trying out is to give the Azure Arc Data Services a run, mm -hmm. just because I find that that's going to be really interesting in the way that it shapes a lot of our clients or maybe even our managed services in general. Because for example, once Azure Arc data services are generally available and maybe we've given them a six months to a year of running stable, then if you have a client that's running SQL Server and they're happy with Microsoft, what do you propose to them next time they need to upgrade? Do you propose that we build a new SQL Server cluster and put in the latest version of SQL? Or do we propose that we just build a new Azure Arc cluster and we run managed instances inside? Mm -hmm. And then we always get the evergreen software and we forget about actual upgrading SQL Server, quote unquote, right? That could potentially change. All of our clients that run SQL Server could potentially one day just be running Azure Arc data services, right? Yeah. So that's going to be really interesting. So I want most excited to download it, run it, see how stable it is today, see what the experience is like, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, indeed. All right, well, that's all the time we had for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is helping others to find us. And you can do that by writing a short, honest review on your platform or choice, or maybe telling a friend about the podcast and what you like about it. Also, we love your feedback. You can email me anytime at datascapepodcast at gmail.com. I respond to every single email. You can engage Warner through that same channel as well, if you prefer. But we'd love to hear from you, ideas, what you like about the show, what you'd like to see us change. That's all we had for today. Have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.